And everybody, all those leaders were like, we should tell the whole church this conversation because there's so much stuff that came out of it. And one of the verses that sort of has marked the series as we've looked at it is this one right here from John 14. Jesus has just finished up having the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, which are all pretty impressive things, and they will do even greater things than these, meaning you have not seen everything that I could do, and you're, there's more to be done, and you guys get to do it. This is Jesus about to go to the cross. He's saying, the work I started, there's more, and it's going to be better and greater, and you're going to be a part of that. And so there's all kinds of questions that come with that, but basically, as you look at it, not only are we going to do the same kind of stuff that Jesus did, which is incredibly impossible to believe, but you're going to do it in a way that's better or bigger or greater than anybody, any one of you can ever imagine. And that starts to get a little crazy, which means however Jesus was, to make disciples go around him, they're going to be like him and greater. There's more to that story. Even than just what they're, there's just going to be more. So however Jesus is, will be like the disciples, but to a greater degree. This is true understanding of what it means to go and do the impossible. So let's do this. We're going to pray and we'll jump into today's message. Let me pray. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful, as uh, Kira said so wisely, that you are good all the time. And while we may not understand everything about you being good, and it doesn't always seem like good, you are good. And we trust in that. Father, we have great stories of your generosity, generosity in the most surprising ways to us. God, you have given up so much. You gave up everything that we might come into a relationship with you and we might we might walk with you. And so, Father, for just a, a moment, probably one of the most helpful things we could do in our lives on a regular basis is to stop and to acknowledge where we might be wrong. Would you help us in that? Would you elevate us in our own hearts? No matter where we are in our life, no matter how tough things are, would you help us to find even the simplest thing for which we can be grateful in you? you have given so much to us. You gave your whole life that we might have life. That we might no longer be estranged from you, but that we might walk with you. Would you help us to live gratefully in this day? In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, if you, um, you want to follow along on an outline, there's one in your bulletin. You can look at that. We also will put everything you need on the screen. You can follow along that way. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be mostly in Luke chapter 18. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but um, well, let me ask you guys, I, when I was thinking about this this week, um, my, uh, I remember when I was a kid, there was this, the, the, I remember my school put in the, the office, in elementary school, they put in a pencil box, which meant that, I, that you could buy, you could, like a dispenser machine, like, you know, you could put like a quarter in and get like a worthless piece of candy or like a little plastic thing. This, this was, you could get two pencils for a quarter. And I remember... And they were all, like, kind of brightly colored. This was right at the, the era when everyone in my grade started discovering the idea of pencil fighting as well. Remember that where you, like, flick a pencil at each other? And there was always some ninja in your class who could just one swipe, just, you know, like, oh, man. But I, and I was terrible at it. But I remember one time I came to school with, like, just, a, like, my pockets just absolutely busting out with quarters, like $8 in quarters. And I remember I was like, yeah. I'm going, and people are like, can I get in? I'm like, no, I got, I got five more dollars right here. So you just can deal with it. And I remember I just took these, this, I mean, $8 in quarters. And I remember taking them into my backpack, and just they were just all over the place. And I was like, who wants to battle pencil? You know, it was like, I was all over this place. It was the most important thing in my life. And I saw all these kids, and I was like, I'm going to save up quarters. 
and I'm going to learn how to be a great pencil fighter. And I'm going to have these wonderfully beautiful pencils. Now, I collected them, and they were worthless, and I just thought they were so important in my life. Now, let me ask you guys. What are some of the things that when you were a kid, you were like, these matter so much. I'll save my money. I will, I will ask for this at Christmas. I will collect these things. What are some of those things you guys would choose for yourself? Baseball cards. I have baseball cards. I still have them. I was like, ooh, maybe I should pay for college if I can get that five bucks. It's like, no, you can't. You know, that's Martha Marie's Sales. You can't. That doesn't matter if you have a great mechanic. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, okay. Uh, what's that? Star Wars figures. Oh, yeah. My mom sold all mine at a garage sale. I love my mom. She might even be here right now. She's made three months kids. But I, I remember, like, like where's, that, where's the big Millennium Falcon thing? And I don't remember. Oh, my gosh. That also could pay for my kid's college, right? Good. That one could, and it should, even if it's expensive. Okay, good. What else did you guys collect? Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies. That was an investment for a little while, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. What else? Video games. What kind of video games? Nintendo, yeah. We all Super Sucker Atari for Nintendo's days. Yeah. Ooh, that fake wood vinyl strip on the, on the cover of that. Remember that? Oh, so lame. Yeah. What else? Transformers. Oh, man, I forgot about that. Yeah, Transformers. I remember I had my Transformers Christmas Day. Yeah, I hated that. Like, I told them this, like, Porsche, you know, robot guy, and I was like, this is so awesome. Like, literally shaking it and dropping bricks. <laughs> oh, no. You know, luckily that year my dad actually got me a tool truck, and so I didn't know how to use it. I'm, like, hammering stuff together. <laughs> what else? What else? Barbies. Oh, Barbies. Hot Wheels. What? Pogs. Wow. Oh, look at, there's a lot of people who played Pog evidently over here. They were into like that, flipping those things, whatever. Yep. My, but my friend's brother was the like, Coda de Casa champion. He, well, he beat everybody in Coda, I guess. There's like four people in the show, he beat them. Good. Anybody else, what'd you collect that you thought, this is everything. This gives me the greatest joy in my life. What else? What? A Ford? Swords. Did you collect swords? I collected pencils for fighting. <laughs> Just like swords. Don't mess with this guy, all right? All right, there's so many things when we're younger that we go, these things give me, the, they give me energy. They give me life. They're the things that I want. They, and we have all kinds of ideas, whether they're small or they're big. But we have these kinds of things, I think probably more than, more than likely, more than not. A lot of those things, those same kind of thinking that we transfer from little kid things like pencils and transformers and Atari Play 600 to swords. You had a horrible pair. Remember that? You just like swords. Oh, yeah. No, I know. Whatever. You just, I can't hear you, but you're making this sign and it makes me nervous. <coughs> but you have, whatever those things are that we, we got our joy from as kids, we, c- we kind of take that same kind of thinking and we move it into our adult life in different ways. I, I would say just there, there's some truths about joy, some universal truths about joy that I want us to get our handle around. So there's some universal truths about joy, and there's probably more than what I'm going to come up with here. I just have two that I want you to think about. One is this. Everyone searches what can ever give them the most of it. So whatever, the, whatever it is that gives you the most life, whatever gives you the greatest fulfillment, we'll call it joy. But everybody searches for, no matter if you're brand new to church, never been to church in your life, never grew up in a church, whatever it is, or this is your home church, or whatever it might be. Every person in the world is searching for the thing that gives them the most, of, the most kind of life they can have, the greatest possible joy. Everybody's searching for it. Everybody. Secondly is this. Everyone already always resources that thing. As soon as people figure out the thing that gives them the greatest joy, that gives them the greatest and deepest fulfillment in their life, they resource it. They orient their time, their energy, 
their own abilities, their own financial resources around it, so that that thing gets elevated in their lives. Everybody's searching for something to give them the most joy, the most life, to give them the fullest kind of life. And once they find it, no matter how good or bad it is, whether it's tempest or cod or sword, again, I'm scared of you, whatever it is, people find ways to resource that joy, always. Now, I'm going to share with you guys a story about a guy who resources joy. And it's about a guy who's looking for that source of life. He's looking for a way to go, how do I have the fullness, the richest, the most abundant kind of life? And I want you to hear Jesus' answer. It's a great, great story. Some of you have heard it before. It's a very famous story. But my hope is if you've heard it before, you'll hear it with fresh ears for the first time. So let's take this out. This is Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there, this, is, this story is in three passages of the Bible. It's in, it's in Mark chapter 10. It's in, I think it was maybe it's in Matthew. It's also in Luke here in 18. And it's a story often referred to as the rich young ruler. You know, here it's just referred to as the ruler. And the other passages have him as a rich young ruler. And they have, him, they have him young. But here's what I want you to understand. This is describing a person who has means. Anybody who's described as a ruler is someone who has means. They are wealthy in some capacity or another. And this guy asks Jesus a question. What do I got to do to have the joy? I am looking for and I cannot find this eternal kind of life. He's not just asking, some of you grew up in the spiritual, but this only meant, I'm just, how do I get to heaven when I die? That's not, that's, 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 that's only a tiny part of the whole picture. What he's saying is, how do I participate in the fullest kind of life, now and forever? How do I have this kind of life that is rich and abundant? Not just simply sort of, uh, uh, kind of, you know, I, I wait till I'm dead and enjoy that. It's like, how do I have the fullest kind of life? Now, this kind of question, I should tell you, that question, how do I inherit eternal life? It's not like it's a burning question in the first century in, the, in this particular part of the world. Everybody knows the answer to that question. I mean, if you ask someone, a Jewish person in that time, hey, how do I have the fullest kind of life, the God-sized, fully abundant kind of life, everybody would go, well, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, it's not, maybe not pretty easy, but it's simple in answer. You just got to obey what God says, and then you have the fullest possible kind of life. That's, everybody knows the answer. So... This guy, he's asking this question, essentially. He's asking, where's the joy? I mean, this is, this is what he's asking. He's asking, where's the joy? I, I'm looking for joy. I want to know where it is. I'm trying to find it. I want to know where the joy is, but he can't find it. He has all of these means. He knows how he's supposed to find the fullest possible life, and he asks, the guy with all these means, he goes, how do I have this fullest kind of life, this eternal kind of life? Jesus answers him. It's kind of a bizarre line. He goes, why do you call me good? Remember, he's saying, hey, good teacher. How do I have the eternal kind of life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. Now, this is a little bit of a Jesus message right here. What you know about God alone. Because Jesus is really good. <laughs> the good he's the goodest. He's the best, right? Jesus is incredible. He is perfect by all accounts. Where the Bible sees him is as a perfect person. And yet Jesus has this question back at this guy. Why do you call me good? And there's lots of, of you know, Hebrew Bible precedent for nobody's good except God alone. In fact, there's Psalm 130 says, if I ask anybody to stand up, who can vouch for him? Nobody can stand. I mean, it's like nobody can stand. Because everybody has sin. And it's provoking something. You're going to see absolutely in this, in this passage, you're going to see the genius of Jesus in the most surprising way. Now, the reason Jesus says, you can kind of guess this, why he says, why do you call me good? It's because it's, he's reflecting something about this man to him. In other words, this man might think he's pretty good. Jesus is a good person. 
You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus gives them these commandments. These are like, he lists off, you know, a couple of the Ten Commandments. He just lists off these Ten Commandments. To which the man says, the straight answer, all these I've kept since I was a little boy. So Jesus lists off five commandments. Now, it's really interesting. Have you guys ever, have you guys ever done this? Parents have done this. Or if you're, I'll, I'll get, well, I'll get people on parents in just a second. But you've done this before, where you're like, the dad's in particular, my favorite dad. You read in the story, you're a kid, heard these 500 commandments, same exact story. Brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, classic. First 48 commandments. And you're reading brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? But you know, Fortran is about to start. So it's like, brown bear, brown bear, then the walrus showed up, and then there was uh, an animal and a kid, and everybody said, what do you see? Hey, isn't that a great story? And the kid is like, and the kid looks at you like, that's not how it goes. I know how it goes. We've gone over the story a million times. I love it. I'm two years old, and it looks like I can read because I have every page memorized. Because I've read it so many times. And they know when you skip a page, you're trying to skip through Dr. Seuss. Yeah, 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 and then thing one and thing two, and blah, 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 everything got cleaned up. No, I'm just kidding. You know, like, now, others of you, alternatively, if you've ever heard your niece or your nephew, not a parent, but you've heard your niece or your nephew explain to you with joy how they can sing the alphabet song, and they start, and this is for most of you people who have, like, some mild degree of OCD or some kind of, you know, maybe what we used to call anal retentiveness, but you still use that because it's funnier. Uh, but you hear someone saying the alphabet, and they go, A, the kid's like, A, B, C, E, F, G, H, I, and you're like, oh, oh, you, you left out something. I know how this goes, and you left it out. Are you with me? You guys, you guys know what I'm saying. Some of you are like, I hate that, and you have a problem, okay? I'm one of those people, too. My kid learning how to count to 100. He's not saying it. He, it's just, just recently started saying it 10, so you go 29, like 28, 29, 31, 32, 33, and it's like, for me, I'm like, ah. He's going to be in high school and not know how to count. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. This is a major crisis. Oh, my gosh. Oh, can you work with your hands? Because you're not going to do well in school. Like, I just have this, like. Now, here's what I'm getting after. This guy, this rich young ruler, a self-purported, understood-to-be-good person who Jesus is sort of beginning to sort of poke at a little bit here. This person who is doing all these great things, Jesus says to him, five commandments. But the question is, not which commandments does he say, he says those five commandments. Really, I think the genius of Jesus here is the commandments he does not say. Because the guy who grew up in this culture in this time, who knows the answer to the keeping of the commandments, probably could list all ten of them. More than, I mean, he could. And Jesus says, Oh, yeah, do you do these, these five things? You know, and he lists them off. There's this, you know, adultery and, you know, lying, you know, honoring your mother and father, whatever. But he doesn't say, hmm, in other words, what's, what are the unlisted things that Jesus could say? What is that? Because the man was asking for it. What does he say? This is the story you should have. Where's the, where's the richness of life that I so desperately want for myself? And he can't find it. And so what Jesus says is these five commandments, but he leaves out. That's verse 20. This is when the Ten Commandments are given to Moses. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is a 
by explaining the information to in the huge Roman story, what's the first commandment, blah, 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 blah. I rescue you from the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first thing. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of any, anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. This is idolatry. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. This is traditionally called you know, taking the Lord's name in vain. In other words, the, the best way to say it is to make the Lord's name light. In heaven, you treat it lightly. That's why they do this. Then verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. In verse 17, this is the last of these. Verse 1 through 4, and then verse 7, and then the seventh week of the, or the tenth commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, ox, or donkey, the rest of it, or anything else in your neighbor's house. Now, let me summarize those things. The things which are left out, that, the, that Jesus is talking to this guy about, are about things like this. The, the primacy, the first place that God has in people's lives. What he leaves out is, the making of idols, worshiping things that are empty or worthless, those kinds of things that you've given your, your life to, those things are prohibited. The taking God's name lightly and being so busy, caught up with your own importance that you never fail to understand it is God who gives you everything you have and so you cannot rest. And then lastly, coveting, wanting things that aren't yours. You see, however, however this man is, in this man, all of your life has been centered around the obedience of these five things you have, and yet you have missed the biggest thing in your life. You have found other things to worship to make the most important in your life. You have made these things the source of your life and energy and joy, and you have given yourself over to these things. Now, in the parallel passage in Mark, Jesus, before he goes any further with this guy, he's about to like rock this guy. Before he goes any further, in Mark chapter 10, this is what surprises me. Just, just one sentence. It's not in the other accounts of the story. But just this one verse in Mark 10, 21, this is what surprises me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The word love here isn't like, I'm trying to buy you flowers. The word love here would be gaze love or smile. This is look, it's the same, it's the same Greek word that you have for the God looks at how much he loves the whole, whole world. Jesus looked at this man and which means whatever Jesus says to this guy about however he's built his life, whatever he's pointed his life at, it comes from a place of love. Look, you are looking for the deepest, richest, fullest possible kind of love. And what I'm about to say is going to confuse you. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack love. Remember, the guy just said, I've kept these commandments since I was a boy. Still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, that's pretty scary. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus encounters a number of other rich people in the Bible. He encounters them all the time. But it's only this guy that he says, you got to sell everything and follow me. There are people Jesus runs into all the time that are rich, except for this guy, he says, you've got to sell everything and follow me. Those things, I've been there. For a guy that has like a rich, young community, this group that would be celebrated. Jesus says to him, in essence, the things, these are things that have power over you. 
you have trusted all of your wealth, or whatever it is, to give you the fullest kind of life, and it is not working. And apparently you don't want to let it go. You have worked hard. You have earned this thing. You have, you have been good in business, or maybe you've been honest, and you've done these other things, but you have looked to your wealth to give you the fullest kind of life. Slave says, if you want the fullest kind of life, this eternal kind of life, then kill it. You can't, it cannot be had by you continuing to resources, energy, and time, and energy. All of this wealth, it won't give you the life you're looking for. That's what it feels like. When he heard this, the man seemed very sad, and he was very angry. He looked at himself and he thought, man, I have so much that I have built my life around that I am hopeless and I'll never listen to God who has all of this stuff as well. And he says to Jesus, how do I have the eternal kind of life? Because I can't find it. It's not in all this stuff. that every, I have everything anybody could want. In fact, at this time, people looked at rich people and said, this God is so blessed you, you must be wealthy. It wasn't just that like rich people, like now we kind of have a different understanding about rich people. Kind of like, we kind of accept this notion of bad rich people. Like, well, you're probably, you know, then it was like, you're rich because God has blessed you. You must have, been, you and your parents and your parents' parents and everybody else must have been righteous people because God is blessing you in the present. You're rich. And now what's being said to this man is, you've made this your identity. You've made this your source of joy. And it is robbing you of the life you should be living. And he says to this man, remember, there's a couple things here. He says, last time, yes. And I saw, this is Ecclesiastes, by the way, is probably in using the Bible, Old Testament, it's probably one of the most depressing books in the Bible. But it's a very real, it's a very honest, real book. And here's what it says. And I saw all the toil and upheaval that spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. In other words, all of this stuff that we try to put ourselves into, this capturing and taking and holding on to stuff, this coveting, it's, it's, it's the Ten Commandments. All of it's worthless, said differently. Whoever loves money has never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. People who have enough money never have enough. People who seek after and chase money, they never, they're always, in his language, never satisfied. They never have enough. They never find eternal life. Now, there's this kind of chasing of the wind thing that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes describes as kind of emptiness and pseudo joy. Because everything in the world is written to you to try to convince you that the fullest kind of life can be most often purchased. You can buy it. You can earn it. You can research it. You can put it on credit. You can have it be a part of your life and you can play it out. Whatever it is. That's the way in which we live. People are looking to try to get us to a place in which we can have the fullest kind of life because we can afford it. You know, it's interesting about this passage. Well, I'll say this. I was, I was, I was one time when I was in college, I was in, uh, But I'm in, I'm in Istanbul, Turkey, and this guy's holding up a leather jacket. Now, I don't even want a leather jacket. I'm not a leather jacket kind of guy. Some of you say, yeah, that's, that's been lame for you. You shouldn't do that. And I, this guy's holding a leather jacket. Now, at the time, you know, it, the, the, the repairs and stuff in Turkey can be real. And I had a $1 million. That gives me like, you know, $1 million. That's pretty, that's pretty good. And 
the guy goes, I, he goes, I'll show you this jacket. I go, how much? And he goes, three million. And he goes, and I go, no, one million. They don't even want a jacket. And I, and I go, and I guess he goes, he goes, he goes, three million. I go, I'm only giving you one because I don't care. You know, and he goes, after a lot of like, ah, oh, whatever. And I, and I give him, this is essentially eight dollars. I give him eight dollars. <laughs> now, just imagine the quality of the product you get <laughs> when you buy an eight dollar leather jacket from a street vendor in Istanbul, Turkey. So I put this jacket on, and it smells like formaldehyde. It just smells like it's sucking the life out of my body, you know? Like, I literally had to leave it in, it's in some country right now. It's poisoning the water supply, I'm sure, in some fashion. But there was this sense of me that said, I want this kind, you know, for whatever reason, I want to be able to have this thing, but it's totally fake. And it will not deliver. And Jesus is saying to this man, you have got everything you could want, and it's not going to deliver. And you're asking me, how do I have the fullest kind of life? You have everything you possibly could want, but it is a pseudo kind of thing, and it's never delivered. And you want it to, and you're holding on to it, and it's not ever going to deliver what you expect. And it's partly true. Jesus doesn't deliver. Right? And he gets it. He gets it just right. Then he says, it's even, it's even worse. Matthew 6, this is another chapter that I was just talking about money just for a second. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is the only time Jesus, like, identifies a rival God by name. Only time. Now, Jesus is speaking against all kinds of idolatry. But the only one he identifies by name is this one, money. And he says to the people who are following, this is, part, this is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's speaking to all these people, and they're like, tell us about this eternal kind of life, this kingdom kind of life. And he tells them, and he says, you can't serve both these things. You only get one God. You can choose it, but you can't have both of these things. Now, the word money in literal translation is mammon. It's the word mammon in Aramaic language. And it's this really interesting word because it's used by Jesus to basically describe this. I'll give you a definition. It looks like this. Egocentric, covetousness, which claims man's heart and exploits his interests. This is the way, this is like the definition, this is why I got this from a, you know, a commentary that I got. Egocentric covetousness, which claims man's heart and estranges him from God. Which means, you get the sense that the reason why Jesus loves this man so much is because his heart is estranged from God. He has found another God, and it is keeping him away from his heart's intention, which is to be with God. To, God intended for human beings to walk with him. And there is a rival God, which is very persuasive. Raises us to love him. See, we get to choose our gods. One of those gods can give us the fullest kind of life, and the other one cannot. There's only pseudo choices. Now, is this passage, is this conversation about money? Yes, but one other thing. And other life, it's about finding and identifying the things that we seek and hope to give us the greatest joy that only leave us fulfilled. In other words, it's about our love for God. It's about the things that we worship and build our life around. It's all of that stuff. I talked to someone this week who said, you know, you know, we're talking in, the, in general meetings, and she goes, well, you know, I used to be like this crazy rockstar kind of woman, like really into Jesus, but when I was a freshman uh, in high school, I was doing this weird psychology experiment, you know, like the way I approach God, and it was very popular with the freshman class and everything. She goes, it became my entire life. My, like, all my whole life was built around this idea of praying back to God all the time. 
and I want him to get great, and I want him to do great. Well, what's happening at the same time is she's learning how to, like, she starts taking Jesus kind of seriously. And then she gets this incredibly scary thing, which God says, I want you to kind of kind of nudging her towards music. And he goes, I want you to really pursue this with all that you have. And she's like, I have to choose between this thing that I've made the most important, that I get all this praise, and like, people love me how great I am here, and this other thing in my life, which has now become critically important. But you have to imagine, so, parents, just to think about this for a moment. If you're a parent who has invested in your kids' sports future, and I'm talking invested in your kids' sports future, where you're, I mean, that you're choosing between a club sports season and going on vacation, or you're choosing between that and food on the table, or debt, or whatever else it is, I know, that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand that work. But have your kids say, I don't want to do that anymore, I want to go into music. You have a bit of a crisis, too, in some respects. Uh, you could. You're really talented, but I can't. I mean, you know, your kids are pretty big here. But what she says is, I am trusting in this one thing to give me a lot of praise, and that's the thing that I've chosen. I've invested in this. Now, for us, it's not always that dramatic. It really is. Sometimes it's more dramatic. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus is saying to this man, you have chosen a life, and you are wondering why it is not giving you the fullness that you were expecting. And then he says to this man, if you want to really release the power that that stuff has in your life, you're going to have to give it away. And the man's like, oh, I don't want it. I'm sad about that. I mean, you get to do it another way because clearly I'm blessed. And Jesus says, why don't you make this an offering? Let me say this. He said it with dignity. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God when the kingdom of God is ready to eternal life and life abundantly. Instead, it's easier for a camel, easy indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now that is not that is punishment. That is like harsh. That's that's really hard. Can you just can you say that a little softer, a little differently? Now what we all wonder we see something like this. We go, those rich people, they better watch out. Man, those rich. Never liked them anyway. Unless they're having a barbie. Then they're okay. Then I'm not invited. <laughs> but other than that, I don't trust them. Now, I did some research this week. This is frightening. Prepare yourselves for this. Brace yourselves. The question we all wonder is, who's rich, right? Because we, we kind of have a good idea about that. Like, we know who they are. And we, as, we, as I said, they're wonderful if they invite us over to a barbecue. But other than that, we're rich. Trust us on that one. I asked this question. I was looking at it online. I was getting a little bit angry. Remember, like, remember the Occupy movement? Remember that? Yes. And the people were looking at the 1% and said, you should, do, you, should, you should release some of your wealth to us. And looked at the 1% saying, hey, 1%, you guys have to do some stuff with your money. And, and all of us, most of us probably went, I'm glad I'm not one of the 1%. That's just, you know, those people stick for the extra money. There's no place like them. Yeah, there's, it's pretty funny, though. There's, there's, a, there's an Occupy Avon. I live in Avon. There's an Occupy Avon where I was like, there's like two guys at a tent. And like, there's, you know, and it's like... You're in suburbia, dude. It's like Occupy Ladera Ranch. You do the same exact thing. It's just you know, like, all right. Watch out for the sprinklers and the manicured lawns are going to come out. You know, it's like, okay. <coughs> but I'm looking at this, this statistic, and so I looked at it. What puts you in the global 1%? Like, you're the, you're the dirty, untrustworthy 1% that they, you're that. You, you, want, you want to know where that starts? Where's the tent? I'm in college. I'm not 1%. I'm not great. Good for you. That's the global 
the wealthiest of the wealthy people in the world make that much money a year? Now, yeah, get everybody in the middle class. But that's the global wage. Now, like, bear with me here. Like, if you're, Jesus is speaking to anybody, and I'm speaking to this group, what, what would qualify as a rich person? Top 20%? Top, I mean, how far, I mean, when, this is just the 1%, which means more than likely, occupy the smallest percentage of wealth, which means Jesus looks at us and says, you might have a problem. You may not, but you might have an issue about the things that you value the most in your life. You might be someone who could be corrupted by the necessity of holding on to stuff, holding on to wealth, because it's so important to you, you build your life around it, and you make it so important, and then you wonder, where is the eternal kind of life? Well, because maybe for us, and I'm putting myself in this category of sometimes, maybe for us we go, I'm just going to hold on to this. And the next thing you know, it becomes a quote-unquote security. Money is so sexy. I was, I heard a, a, a TED Talk years ago from like Jerry something. It's called The Money Paradox. And I'll give you just a couple of highlights of this thing. They had a bunch of, they had a bunch of college students playing a rigged Monopoly game. In which, I don't know how they exactly said that, it's a little bit unclear to me in the, in the conversation, but basically what they did is they gave these kids a rig, rig monopoly game in which one person got twice as much money to start, and they got to roll the dice twice. Which means they rounded, you know, go, like they did all faster than the other player. And they, they just observed the game. So these two kids are playing the game. It's only, that's the whole experiment. They just need to watch, I think it was their birthday. They just need to watch how they play the game. And they started to record these guys' comments of how they were playing the game. And the person playing the rigged game the entire time started saying, you know, just like kind of, you know, acting kind of like, wow, that's dumb. I don't know, Chad, I'm just kind of dominating here. Like they're saying these kinds of things. When they asked the people after the game, how, how did you, how, did, how were you able to win? Every, every single person, no, not a single one of them said, oh, I don't know, I just looked, I got lucky, I guess. Every single person, well, I, you know, I beat the player, my grandmother was a gal, you know, so I kind of developed kind of a skill and a knack for this game. And I mean, it's like they all started talking as if they were geniuses. None of them, not knowing the game was, was rigged, presumably I guess other people were rolling for them, I don't know how it works, but none of them said, you know what, the game I think had me kind of, I guess, just worked in my favor this time. None of them. They all said, I'm kind of awesome. There was the same play, this same talk. They asked the question, does everybody know this, right? It's a very successful lot of money. It's the money by half of the time. And their answer was, and this is surprising, yes, it is. Of course, it's that way. And there's their experiment. They gave college kids again. They said, go, to half of the group, they said, go and do whatever, do whatever you want with this money. They're like, you just want me to go do what I want with this money? And they said, yes, then tell us how you feel afterwards. So they went out, and they bought Starbucks, or they bought books, or they hung out, or whatever else they did. They went to, you know, get a burger, and they asked them how they felt. Their answers were short. It's great, it's fine, it's cool, thank you, appreciate it, wonderful. To the other group, they said, take this money and give it away. And then come back and report to what hap- about what happened. They're like, give it away, yeah, you can find out, however you want to give it. You can give it to a homeless person. You can make it appear to the airplane and float, you know, throw it off of a bridge and help someone else. Whatever you want to do. But just give it away. They're like, okay. The answers that came back from those students who gave their money away, they had long answers with tons of words. It's so, I was, you know, it was so fun to make someone else's day to do this. I, you know, when I asked these people how they felt, I was very thankful I was full. I had a cup of coffee in my hand. But when these people, they were like, it was so great to give that money away. I did not even realize how much this money would have mattered to another person 
It was so much fun. I love this. This is such a great experience. I love this. How would you rate your personal sort of happiness? Very happy. In other words, the people who kept it for themselves went, nah, that's so good. I mean, it's nothing wrong with, you know, not having a personal cup of coffee, but giving it away changed their lives. The way you buy happiness, according to this is not, you know, this is not some, I'm not making a hippie study. Or fact. The way you buy happiness evidently is by giving it away. In other words, that's love. No, we give it another way. I mean, that's, you give us the other version of that story. That's, that's the truth. Now, remember at this time, people watching, watching Jesus have this conversation are anticipating that the rich people are the ones who are truly blessed by God, who must be righteous, who must be doing things great. And Jesus just tells this guy, you're going to have to sell everything. And it's the guy that everyone saw. And then he tells him, you know, camels and eyes of needles and all kinds of stuff. And the people watching think they're rich. Those who heard this then ask, those who heard this ask, who then can be saved? Like if the rich guy's in trouble, we're all, we're all in ginormous trouble. What are we going to do? We're all farmers and stuff. Jesus answered them. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible that God would take people who are like us, really overly concerned about holding on to and protecting our wealth, bringing us to a place of generosity and fullness that we never otherwise understood, the thing we most resist because we plan on our wealth holding on, whatever little bit we've got, we hold on to it. And he goes, the most impossible thing is you can have fullness and a blessing, eternal kind of blessing, Jesus, just like you never expected. Like me. You can't have it on your own. Some of you are resourcing things that cannot give you joy or happiness. Some of you are looking to relationships. You're imagining the future where you might meet someone who will give to you the greatest joy in your life. Some of you are looking to your own children to give you the greatest joy in your life that can, that can sustain and fulfill you with eternal kind of life. Others of you are looking beyond to an education, looking onto a future that's not yet in, in focus. You're saying, someday, I'll have those things, and they'll give me the life I'm hoping for. Kind of life that's attained 
only by overcoming great obstacles. I would say it's this way, Rick. You can't do it. The story of what God does in people's lives is to bring them to see out of things that are contrary to their nature. And most often, the struggle from captivity to freedom is not easy. It is hard. It's always Some of you grew up in the church or a church environment, and money came at you, and it was a giant guilt trip to you. Hey, everybody, you're not giving. What's wrong with you? You know, God knows what you've been doing. That's not ever given. Have you ever got that impression from the church that's not giving? I want to tell you how, how the church sees and understands giving. It's always an essential prayer. It is a participation in that project of redemption in the world. That is what this is. We talk about giving. Some of you are going, are you going to tell me to give to the church? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. And here's why. Because I believe that the work that we're doing here is the most important work in the world. I believe that people's lives are being transformed through God's power, through his church, which is full of broken people who do not have it all together, who do not have all the answers. If you were with us last week, this kid is a perfect picture of broken people praying for broken people. God, would you work through people to heal them? Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Same thing, really important. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, meaning you do this with joy, you are resourcing with joy because you believe in what God's doing, or under compulsion, not because you feel threatened or coerced or tricked or manipulated, but because you believe in it. Because you go, I can't sit here and not be a part of what God's doing here with my father. I can't, or, can't not orient my heart towards it. For God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God doesn't love a reluctant, miserable, bitter giver. Friends, you have so much to consider in your life. There are real problems and real issues in your life, I understand. And I believe that it is the church, the church is the hope of the world. And yes, the Bible is a stubby church as a radiant bride of Christ. Sometimes the church comes across a little bit like Bridezilla. Sometimes it is so beautiful. And if you want to continue to be a part of this God's great work in the world, the radiant light of Christ, then maybe there's a part of you that has to confess that today. But only if it is your joy to do so. Guys, I don't have a bunch of time, but I've got to pray.
that anybody can help me, right? Let's pray together a little bit better. Jesus, you have called us to a life of richness and abundance. Father, we're so confused how the richness and abundance in our life doesn't come on our terms. We want it to be in the way that we want, and yet you tell us if anything that we hold on to, anything that we hold on to that has to do with our own, our own wealth or our own worship of other things is only going to leave us empty. Jesus, we want to be generous people. We want to learn about generosity. Father, might you start in us a, a journey toward generosity, if only it's just the beginning. Father, free us from the sense of comparison about what other people will give or what we can give or can't give. Might you just start us on the journey instead, Father, if you want us to joyfully be a part of, to resource the joy that you bring in people's lives. And so, Father, we're going to sing. We're going to respond with joy. Because that is our act of worship. We joyfully respond with all that we are. And so, Father, whether it's with our finances or our voice or our effort, whatever it might be, Father, we give to you and we resource that joy. We steal our joy from you. People can come forward and use joy, Father, not to steal their joy, but to take from you and steal it. We go along on your word and all your commands. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. stand together, and my prayer this morning is that we see finances, giving, all of this stuff, it's about vision, it's about having faith vision, and seeing with how he sees it, so my prayer this morning is that Jesus would wrap you up, that we would see all these things in our hands the way he sees them, and let's make this our prayer this morning as we respond in worship.